This is Genetics in Your World, a podcast by the Genetics Society of America, where we delve into the latest exciting developments in the field of genetics. This is your host, Daniel Baker, a graduate student at the University of Pennsylvania. Today, we will be discussing a recent publication published in the journal Genetics by Dr. Catherine Maniatis. Catherine recently completed her PhD in the laboratory of Allison Abbott at Marquette University and has begun her postdoctoral fellowship at Rutgers University. We are extremely excited to talk to Catherine and to learn more about her, her science, and the stories behind her science. Thank you for joining us today, Catherine. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on. So before we delve into the discovery that's been made, we'd like to learn a little bit more about how you got interested in science in the first place. What were your interests while you were growing up? Yeah, so I think that I've always been interested in science and engineering. My mom says she knew from the amount of tinkering that I did, that was going to be somewhere in my future. I grew up mostly in Chicago, so I spent a lot of time going to the Museum of Science and Industry and the Art Institute, and I really enjoyed getting to see like how the things were made and the assembly and everything that went into it. Um, And then as I got older and I started high school, Um, In my freshman biology class, we did this case study about coronary artery disease, and we had to like work backwards to figure out what had happened in this one patient. And I thought that that process was really interesting in figuring out everything that went into this diagnosis. So at that point, I was like, be a doctor, because that's the logical next step. It's, I think, what you see represented the most. I headed off to college. I went to St. Catherine University, which is a small all-women's college in Minnesota. There, I studied biology and public health. I thought I was going to go to medical school, and I took my first general biology course. And during the laboratory portion of this course, it was really an experience of total immersion in the scientific method, where we were encouraged to read the literature, identify a gap plan an experiment and things like that. But it was at that point that I was just captivated by doing this work, figuring out these things that nobody else knew yet and helping to close these gaps in knowledge. From there, I took obviously my required classes for my biology major. And in cell biology, we learned about epigenetics. And that I think just blew my mind. It wasn't the central dogma of just DNA to RNA to protein. Um, Somewhere along there, beginning of my sophomore year, I was volunteering in a hospital because I still at this point thought I wanted to go to medical school, realized that absolutely was not the right path for me. For anybody out there who's thinking about that, do the volunteer work so you don't end up in medical school, like not actually wanting to be a doctor. And so I thought maybe being a scientist would be a really cool thing to do. And I was really interested in genetics. But because of where I went to college, it was a really small um, biology department, and they had a fair amount of ecology research, but nobody was really doing genetics research. So I applied for the NSF. They have a research experience for undergrads, where you can go to many different universities all around the United States and spend a summer being paid to do research in a lab. Um, And so I ended up at Marquette University, and this is actually where I met Allison Abbott. So I spent a summer in her lab working to understand how microRNAs regulated ovulation. And it was a really good experience. And that's basically how I ended up back there for graduate school and did my PhD there. Yeah, that's great. It worked out perfectly. As you, you know, ultimately matriculated to Marquette and took up your studies in Allison Abbott's lab, 
what was the overarching question that you asked during your PhD studies? Okay, so the really big question that the lab seeks to answer is what are the genes and pathways that are regulated by microRNAs? But more specifically, the question that I asked was what are the genes and pathways that are regulated by the MIR-44 family of microRNAs, which is just one group of four microRNAs? Great. So you mentioned that the, the lab is focused on uh, the regulation of all of these microRNAs. Was there any particular reason why you were interested in this family? Um, so there was a paper that was published, I think, in 2008, and it looked at what happens when you knock out a whole bunch of different microRNA families in C. elegans. And for a lot of them, there's not these really big phenotypes. It's just small, subtle changes in phenotype. But the MIR-44 family was particularly interesting because MIR-44 and MIR-45 generate identical microRNAs due to probably a gene duplication event pretty far back in evolution. And they make the same microRNA and they're really close to each other on chromosome two. They're only about nine kb apart. So it had never been possible in the past to generate a double mutant. So we'd never been able to look at what happens when you got rid of all of these members of the MIR-44 family. As it pertains to this question, you asked it in the particular model of C. elegans or the nematode. And I, th I think an obvious question for many of us is, is why ask the question there? Oh, so C. elegans has so many benefits as a model organism. For one, it has an invariable cell lineage. So it makes the same cell divisions every single time. It also had the first fully sequenced genome. It has a high level of homology to other organisms. Its lifespan takes only about three to four days to get go all the way from embryo to adulthood, which allows us to study multiple generations of animals and see what happens during reproduction. And additionally, microRNAs were discovered in C. elegans. Perhaps you can give us a little insight as to what are microRNAs and why are they important? MicroRNAs are these small non-coding RNAs. They're about 22 nucleotides long. And what they do is they bind in the three prime end of genes to repress their translation. So basically, they turn down the level of messenger RNAs that are able to be produced into proteins eventually. So they can either, in some examples, they can kind of basically get rid of a protein, or in other examples, more commonly, they can tamp down the amount of a protein that's made. So what we did is we wanted to look at what happened when we got rid of both MIR-44 and MIR-45, which are identical to one another. So we utilized what is still a rather new and amazing technology known as CRISPR. We used CRISPR to generate a mutation in MIR-44 and MIR-45 so that we had a double mutant where we lost function of both MIR-44 and MIR-45. And so this allowed you then to ask this question of what, what are this family of microRNAs actually functionally doing in this model C. elegans? And what, what did you end up seeing phenotypically in these animals? Yeah, so when we lost both MIR-44 and MIR-45, we see that they have a reduced brood size. So this means that they have less progeny overall. So in C. elegans hermaphrodites, they typically have about 300 progeny. And we see when you lose these microRNAs that that number drops to about 150. So they make about half as many offspring. 
And then we also saw a few other phenotypes which related to this. We saw when we had this decrease in brood size, we had a decrease in ovulation rate and a decrease in MAP kinase signaling in the oocytes than the germline. And we saw that when we were able to give more sperm back to the MIR 44, 45 hermaphrodites, we no longer saw defects in MAP kinase signaling. When you generated a knockout, did you think that you would lose essentially germline fecundity? We thought that maybe we would see a decrease in brood size because when we were able to look at previously generated mutants of the MIR 44 family that lost just a few family members, but not MIR 44 and MIR 45, they did have a slightly decreased brood size, but this was more decreased than just when you lost a couple of the other family members. What you're saying is essentially just knocking out these two family members of microRNAs is enough to reduce the brood size by 50%. And this is particularly interesting because we know that when you just lose one microRNA, most animals are able to compensate through redundancy. Hmm. It's flexible enough. They know that it's important. There's somebody else there as backup. So now when we're losing these two identical microRNAs, we're losing a lot of that fertility, which you could imagine if you're an animal in the wild and you only make half as many progeny, you're not going to be as successful evolutionarily. Sure. You, you obviously have this pretty dramatic phenotype as a result of your knockout. What, what was the next thing in your thinking as far as where, where to go next? Kind of the question when you have a decreased brood size that you want to ask is, is this decrease due to defects in the sperm or the oocytes? Sure. And so what we did is we wanted to look and see if MIR 44-45 hermaphrodites generated a normal number of sperm. So one of the amazing things about C. elegans hermaphrodites is that they make sperm during the short period of their fourth larval stage, which is just right before adulthood. They make all of the sperm that they're going to make during their life. And then they switched to oogenesis for the rest of their lives. So we were able to count the number of sperm. And we saw that MIR 44, 45 hermaphrodites also made about half as many sperm. You can closely actually correlate the brood size, where we have half as many progeny, to half as many sperm. And through this and some other experiments, we are able to show that the decreased brood size is due to this decreased number of sperm that are produced. So... You saw this pretty sharp phenotype as it pertained to reproductive fecundity. Did you notice any distinctions with other phenotypes, such as either fat mass or a lifespan, other things that people sometimes look at in the nematode? So when we looked at other phenotypes as they related to as they relate to nematodes, such as fat mass and lifespan, we didn't look at fat mass, although we did not notice that the worms look significantly different in that aspect from their wild type counterparts, although it was not something that we quantified. We didn't do extensive lifespan aging assays, but we did notice that they seem to live into adulthood through their period of reproduction, with the exception of year 44, 45 mutants also have a somatic phenotype where they can fail to lay their embryos. Hmm. Um, that will hopefully be explored at a future time. So it didn't appear that they had large defects in lifespan or fat mass. And so you and your group looked more into the molecular mechanism that's actually governing this sperm defect. So how did you go about actually asking the question at a molecular genetic level, what's going on? Yeah, so we looked at genetic interactions and we basically wanted to look at everything that was required for this process of germline sex determination. 
So that's what indicates this switch from spermatogenesis to oogenesis. And what keeps them in oogenesis? Every cell has to make this decision in the germline. Am I going to be a sperm eventually? Am I going to be an oocyte? So we wanted to look at different regulators of this pathway and see if they had any genetic interactions. So one of them is FOG1. So FOG1 is one of the terminal regulators of germline sex determination. And at the simplest level, when FOG1 is active and high, sperm are being specified. So when we have FOG1 mutants that are loss of function, they're actually called FOG1 because they have a feminization of germline phenotype. So FOG1 mutants will typically make only oocytes. So FOG1 is typically increased during this period of sperm production. And so we wanted to know if that period of sperm production was altered based on the expression of FOG1. And so what we saw in mutants where we lost MIR44 and MIR45, that this period of FOG1 expression was shorter overall. So that decreases the number of sperm that are being made. So what, what you've ultimately shown is that there was this gene that is necessary in order to create sperm and that the loss of MIR44 and MIR45 essentially dropped the level of that gene in the animal. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. And this is where it gets a little into like the, we don't know still phase, specifically how the MIR44 family does this. FOG1, it's a gene, it has a three prime UTR, but in that three prime UTR, it doesn't have a predicted region for MIR44 to bind through a press translation. The germline sex determination pathway is complex. And it has a lot of different members in the pathway, some of which are known, others that still need to be elucidated. But one of the interesting things is that MIR44 family isn't predicted to bind in the three prime UTR of any of these messenger RNAs. So therefore, we predict that the MIR44 family is going to regulate an unknown factor that's regulating germline sex determination. So if you were to summarize essentially the finding of this paper, essentially there was this family of microRNAs that we didn't know what they did, what their function was. Mm -hmm. And what you were able to show is that loss of genetic material that doesn't actually encode for protein has a sharp regulatory effect on the actual fecundity of the brood. Is that correct? That's well summed up. And so when it comes to FOG1, was this showing that this is actually a defect in sperm production, but that mirror 44 and 45, we don't actually know what it's directly targeting? That is correct. We don't know specifically what messenger RNAs it's targeting. And so we tried to get to the bottom of this. So mm -hmm. using predictive algorithms um, that can look at computationally look at the three prime UTR of genes, you can get a list generated. And there was just no extremely obvious target for us. And so mm -hmm. there are a few hypotheses here that could be tested in the future. One, we just simply have not found whatever messenger RNA is also regulating this pathway of germline sex determination that ultimately regulates the levels of FOG1, or that the MIR44 family works to modestly repress multiple different messenger RNAs, which all work to regulate this level of FOG1. Hmm. So I think this is one of the real gems of the paper is there's a lot of work to be done still to elucidate what it's actually regulating directly. 
Oh, absolutely. And I get to ask these questions where I think like, oh, the field is so figured out. And then you come to this and you go, there's still genes that we don't understand what they're doing and who is regulating them and what they're regulating. So we've just started to unravel this veritable ball of yarn that is genetics and genetic regulation. Yeah. So I am a fellow Elegans lover, but if someone wants to ask you, okay, so you've discovered this microRNA family, it's important for genetic regulation, but how is this impactful beyond elegance? What does this tell us about health or our understanding of basic science at large? What would you tell them? So absolutely. So we have to first think about what happens when we either don't have any microRNAs or the microRNAs are misregulated. In those instances, that's when we can get cancer, diabetes, heart disease, infertility. So we know that microRNA regulation plays really important roles, but we can't do fertility research in humans. That would be extremely unethical. Therefore, we have to rely on models where we can understand these genetic relationships so that we can uncover human disease later on. Now we know that, okay, there are microRNAs that can regulate the production of sperm, the period of time where sperm is being made. Maybe there's an analogous process that's happening in humans, mm. and that can be important for us understanding in infertility. Can you elaborate on what you think are some of the most interesting questions to tackle as a result of this identification of this family? Yeah, so we actually have some other work that also uncovers functions for the MIR-44 family in C. elegans males in regulating the process of generating mm -hmm. progeny, but not through sperm number. And also just in identifying more specifically what other genes and pathways the MIR-44 family regulates. Yeah. So I'm just curious, you mentioned that there's two potentialities essentially for this family of microRNAs, that there's essentially an mRNA that we don't know its function or we don't know its sequence. And that's what this family is regulating, or it could be modestly regulating a whole bunch. Mm -hmm. Do you have a sense between the two of which way you think are leaning? I think that is for science to know and for us to figure out. To be honest, when I started this project, I very much so thought that I was going to get one microRNA and one target, but that didn't happen, obviously. And it seems that the story is just much more complex. And so I think that it's going to be time and research in the germline sex determination field that shows that. And then further kind of more network analysis and getting to the point where we understand how these microRNA networks work. Actually, I'll give a shout out to one of my lab members, Lou. She did small RNA sequencing to look at what microRNAs are present in the germline, particularly those that are sperm enriched. And her work has been to generate a lot of these mutants to see if there are other microRNAs that also have defects in sperm production or sperm function. I think your answer is quite apropos. It's sometimes the frustrating thing, but the wonderful thing about science that almost everything is always more complex than we think. We're always trying to put together a puzzle where we don't have all the pieces. So we're just starting to, you know, assemble one of the parts. Sure. So can you tell us what the process was like publishing this work? So this paper we submitted back in January of 2020, and we got back some really good reviews and requests for revisions in the end of February of 2020. So just as we were getting started um, completing some revision experiments, the world shut down due to the pandemic. <laughs> and so I had gotten out all the strains and everything was ready to go. And then we oh, couldn't no. do research. So at that point, I defended my dissertation. 
on April 1st of that year. And then I just, I kind of had to wait until we could get back into the lab. So we finally got back into the lab in the middle of June of 2020. And I hustled to get all of the revisions completed on this paper, because at this point I had accepted a postdoc position and I wanted to get this paper out because I was really work I'm really proud of. So we had some pandemic induced delays on this paper, but I think that it just added to the appreciation for how valuable our research is and what a precious experience it is to get to do it. It really is absence makes the heart grow fonder. Mm -hmm. And being able to answer those questions that were asked was really valuable. Yeah, it's truly a heroic amount of information that's in this paper. To be able to do it in a pandemic, it's certainly a testament to you and to your lab. Thank you. So you defended and then you moved on to your postdoctoral fellowship. Can you tell us a little bit about what you're doing, what you're excited about for the future? Yeah, so I actually just started my postdoc back in the middle of March. So I am working in Andy Singson's lab at Rutgers University, and we're really interested in identification of the genes involved in the process of fertilization in C. elegans. And so I actually really became interested in this work because of the path that the Muir 44 family led me down and realizing that we didn't know so many of the genes and what they were doing in either germline sex determination, but also in fertilization as a whole. During my postdoc, I'm hoping to help identify more genes that are involved in the fertilization synapse and go on from there. So that's really exciting. Uh, when it comes to the future, do you have any plans regarding science over the next few years that you're excited about? Well, I'm really excited to get to continue doing genetics research. And then I'm hoping that when I'm done doing my postdoc, that I'll be able to stay in academia as a faculty member and we'll see where that ends up. <laughs> sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on. And we really enjoyed looking at the paper and hope our audience really enjoys looking at the paper. Thank you. Make sure to check out this paper. Sperm fate is promoted by the MIR-44 microRNA family in the Cenorhabditis elegans hermaphrodite germline. This was published in the Journal of Genetics in January 2021. Thank you so much for joining us today, Catherine, and letting us learn more about you and your exciting discoveries. We wish you the best as you continue to tackle these very important questions. The Genetics in Your World podcast is produced by the Early Career Leadership Program of the Genetics Society of America. We invite you to visit the Society's website for more information on how you can get involved with the genetics scientific community.